The seven deadly sins, you know the list. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath and sloth. Well, they aren't so much biblical as they are patriarchal, holding women in particular to impossible standards in order to be considered good, says Elise Lunan. That constant pressure to be good has very bad consequences for women. Elise is a writer, host of the podcast Pulling the host of the podcast Pulling the Thread, and she spent seven years immersed in the wellness industry as the chief content officer at Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop Company. She shares her own experience balancing the light and dark sides of life and prioritising wholeness over wellness in her book, which is called Our Best Behaviour, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. Elise Lunan joins me now. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. So envy, envy shows us what we want. How did that idea and Hillary Clinton inspire you on the path to write this book? Yeah, I think I, one of the central questions that I wanted to explore, because when you write a book, it better be a big question that's (laughs) going to keep you engaged for many years, was why, why the chasm in inequity in culture and why, um, how much of that can be attributed to sort of factors out there and or men and how much of it is an inability for women to get on side with other women. And we saw this here in America with the 2016 election and with Hillary Clinton and say what you will about your politics, what you mostly didn't, you didn't mostly didn't hear criticisms of policy. It was mostly from other women. I just don't like her. Mm. She rubs me the wrong way. Mm which this this sort of sense of who does she think she is or why her and not me. And I had to wonder if that wasn't some sort of undiagnosed envy, that there was something about what Hillary Clinton was doing in seeking the role, one of the most powerful roles in the world, that felt somehow like it was holding up a mirror to all of us or those of us who feel like we haven't been able to go after our own wanting. And so I really wanted to start with this question of envy and how much of our envy is actually sourced from not actually knowing what we want, in part because it's not really modeled for women Hmm. to go after what we want. And then how much of that is then sort of not consciously, but then projected onto other women who are doing what we want or have what we want in the world and how much of our sort of this uh, female on female um, violence in some ways can be attributed to that, to this idea of envy. Yeah, big ideas and quite provocative ideas too, and we'll get into them. And maybe a good place to start is with your own story. You suffered from terrible anxiety. How do you Mm -hmm. connect that to the quest to be good? Yeah, so I have um I I'm a chronic hyperventilator, which means that I tend to overbreathe. I have this sensation that I can't take a deep breath, but really have plenty of oxygen in my body, but it's very exhausting because I'll get to the top of trying to take a deep breath and it and I won't be able to, and it creates panic for me. And I can't I can't breathe unless I yawn or sigh. So I look very calm and sedate, but inside I I have this roiling anxiety. And this first started for me in my 20s, early on in my career, when I felt completely out of control, like I didn't have safety and security, I could barely pay my bills. Mm. 
And I was convinced that if I just kept achieving, if I kept, you know, steadfast in my pursuit of, of goodness, of being a really good woman, ultimately, eventually a good mother, a good employee, all the goodness, all the, all the enoughness that I would get to the place where I would outrun my anxiety and I would feel completely safe and secure and in control of my world. And then I found myself in, in turning 40 and at the pinnacle of a very visible career where I had achieved a lot on a pretty public stage. And yet I was this particular moment where I opened the book, I'd been hyperventilating for two months. I just couldn't breathe. And I realized that I was chasing a fallacy. There was no finish line and that I had to turn and face these voices that were chasing me, telling me that I wasn't good enough, thin enough, uh, smart enough, whatever they may be, all the not enough that I think is actually a cultural voice for women and not something that we can locate in our families of origin or in our spouses or in our bosses. You you suggest that if women were conditioned for power in the same way that men are, that this wouldn't be so much of a problem. Instead, women are conditioned for goodness. And, and how yeah. do the seven deadly sins play a part in their conditioning? Yeah. So, yeah, that's the general thesis, that women are conditioned for goodness, that a good woman is someone who's never tired, has no wants, subjugates, in fact, all of her wants to other people's needs, has no desire, has no appetite has no need for affirmation or attention or praise, and is never upset about any of it. And I could detect all these signals in my life, and I was trying to understand where they came from. And I traced them back to these toxic ancient stories, the mm. seven deadly sins. And I, I wasn't raised in a religious household. I don't subscribe to these. I don't necessarily, I, I couldn't even list them before I started working on this book. But as I did research into sort of where patriarchy came from and where when patriarchy was coupled with morality and where all these ideas about what it is to be a good woman and a powerful man came from, that's where I arrived, that they have showed up in our lives as a checklist of what it is to be a good woman. And we police them in ourselves and then we police them in each other. Because it's pretty hard to uncondition yourself having yeah. spent a life and spent a lifetime being conditioned. So do you see these sins as a way of sort of unraveling some of this stuff? Yeah. Well, that's the hope because it's exactly what you say. Culture is huge and it's whispered into our ears and it has a virality to it that is so much larger than any personal moral code or family idea. And we learn how to be human by watching each other. And so what it is to be a woman is imprinted on women by other women. And the same goes for men. And I recognized that I could try to untether myself and sort of change all this, all the programming, all that, you know, sitting on the couch next to my husband for no more than 20 minutes watching Netflix before I can feel an invisible cattle prod, you know, lasering me to get up and do something productive, mm. do something, do the dishes, start a load of laundry, get out my computer. Like I can recognize now that that's bigger than me. It's not coming from my husband. It's not from my parents. It is in me, baked into me mm. as an edict of like, you're, you're, you're being a slothful, lazy, like get up, do something. You need to do something. There's always more doing that needs to be done. What I wanted to do was expose the system that is this insidious hmm. web that is governing our behavior in part so that we can start to interrupt it and recognize it in ourselves and then 
collectively change the script and push against these ideas because I think so much, there's so much frustration amongst my fellow women about sort of where we are culturally. And we always want to look to place the blame outside of us. And this isn't to let men entirely off the hook. There are certainly misogynistic, you know, malevolent men in the world. I'm not saying that there aren't, but at least in my life, I couldn't find anywhere. I couldn't find the men to put the locus of blame on. I recognized it was in me that I was holding myself back and in turn holding back other women. That sin you're sort of referring to there as an example is sloth, I guess, that compulsion to be doing something, to not be lazy. And then how about gluttony? Because diet culture seems to be a pretty big part of the story. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of the story, and I think every woman has been touched by it. I don't know, I really don't know any women who haven't been dysmorphic about their bodies or who aren't somewhere on the spectrum of, permitting and restricting, even if they don't or never have had sort of a full-blown eating yeah. disorder. It is entirely consuming for all of us. And unfortunately, fat phobia is baked into our medical system here in the States. And there, are, I think in only one state is it illegal to discriminate against someone based on their size or appearance. So it's completely acceptable still to be fat phobic. And we very much continue to equate thinness and conforming bodies with moral goodness and purity and being disciplined and in control and, you know, maintaining a status quo, a beauty standard. And that to be anything else is to be deviant, gluttonous, lazy. Um, and it's so insidious for women. And again, it's it's one of the most visible both sort of in our cultural fabric and then physically visible um, of the sense where we feel routinely judged. And you hear the moralizing and the way that we talk to ourselves. I was bad last night. I need to be good Mm. today. It's everywhere. And it's going to take a lot of energy and effort to pull it out of our culture so that we can start to become ideally neutral about people's bodies where it's not something that we comment on it's not something where we you know put a stamp of approval and people can stop investing so much energy and attention into their plates and and how they look I'm speaking to Elise Lunin. Her book is called Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. Uh, And Elise, you were Gwyneth Paltrow's second hire at Goop, I think. I imagine as you were starting to have these revelations um, and starting to see the matrix a bit um, in terms of what women are fighting in this world, that your job there may have started to feel a little less sustainable or you may have felt like you needed a break from it. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is so much bigger than any company, um, any person. It's so uh, entrenched in our culture. And, you know, I started, and I, but I certainly, you know, was was participating and, and perpetuating a part of our culture that I, I would, I'm really trying actively to move away from. You know, I started juice cleansing in my 20s in New York. Like we, this is such a, and it's funny. It's like, you even think about this as a concept. It's it's religious. It goes back to sort of purification rituals and detoxification and clean and dirty and all these binaries that I think we have been engaging with for millennia um, that were inherently dirty and we need to be cleansed that 
are so deeply baked into us that I didn't, I don't, I never recognized that as what I was, what I was sort of participating in. And I, I don't think it is widely necessarily recognized that that's just another part of this strange religious cultural sort of play that we continue to perpetuate. Yeah, and and not just Goop. I mean, it's probably the highest profile uh, brand, but the whole wellness industry is a little guilty of suggesting to women that their problems might be fixed by a hot bath uh, and a reset rather than addressing some of the bigger inequalities or or cultural inequities that you have to deal with growing up yeah. in this world. Yeah, no, certainly like the biggest the biggest conversation we need to be ha- having in terms of wellness is around sort of inequity in terms of access to clean water and whole foods and food deserts. And I know everything is so much better in New Zealand than it is here in the United States where we don't have paid family leave. We don't have universal health care. And so, yes, like the inequities um, are huge. And the basic tenets of wellness are the goal, the hope, the dream. The original dream was um, essentially that sort of reminding people of like, try to drink more water than you actually want. Try to go for a walk. <laughs> Remember to breathe. Um, all the things that we know, but are not commoditized or commercialized in the same way that they have. And and now we see wellness becoming even stranger. It's been sort of co-opted. I call them the bro, the bro wellness yeah. um, movement, where now it's about tracking, managing um, every single morsel that you eat, every step you take, every wink of sleep that you get to optimize against the inevitability that we all face, which is that we're going to die. But now it's sort of this strange, like anti-march against aging and death, this longevity, wellness, bro, hackathon, um, which also is just like, again, I I understand it, this idea that you can you can control the uncontrollable, that you can engineer certainty in a world of uncertainty, but it also just feels like it's taking us a lot, much farther away from ourselves. You said something interesting about envy before. You suggested that it may have played a part in um, some women's antipathy towards Hillary Clinton, and, and I see that was quite a provocative thing to say. I, I, I'm not sure anybody who felt that way about Hillary Clinton would immediately think of, well, I've got envy. Is there a, is there a tendency (laughs) to feel it, but perhaps not recognize it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I first came to this um, in a conversation with psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb, who wrote this incredible book called maybe you should talk to someone. Hmm. And it was a small aside in his book where she says, I tell my clients to pay attention to their envy because it tells them what they want. And my immediate um, reflection on reading that is like, I don't feel envious of anyone, just sort of an, an instinctive refusal to allow that feeling, which I think we think is malicious and gross and dirty. And then I also said, well, what do I even want? I don't know. And as I started to pay attention to it, I noticed that I could reverse engineer my envy, but based on who I was kind of deprecating for no good reason, you know, with that, like her book's really not that good. And I don't think her podcast is that amazing, you know, all the things sort of the, the, the way that it was making me uncomfortable. These people were pushing on a dream I had for myself. So I had to reverse engineer it because envy, I think is so gross. We refuse to diagnose it and allow it to come up. And so we repress it and suppress it. And then we project it. So you can notice 
this isn't to say you can't have negative feelings about people. Some, but usually you're like, I don't like this policy. I think this is, mm. you know, dehumanizing or um, you can point to specific behavior. The person themselves isn't tormenting you. But with envy, in my experience, you have just sort of this quote unquote irrational dislike. And that's what I observed with Hillary. It was the people couldn't actually cite any of her policies or give me any specific behavior. It was just this generalized, I don't like her. I just don't like her. And that was enough. Another important dynamic for most women is the mother-daughter dynamic. And you, you write about that. You write about your own mother's feelings of envy towards women who were, quote, doing something with their lives. Did mm -hmm. that worldview rub off on you? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge, it's a small part of the book, but was huge in my own childhood. Mm. And, and I actually wrote a New York Times op-ed about this because... I, my mom grew up during second wave feminism when she kind of had a choice and she kind of didn't. And she theoretically chose to not have a career and to raise us, even though she didn't really want children. And, but again, I don't think she could identify that one. It was more of a, now she can say that. And so I experienced her envy in, in really being sad, wanting to give me everything and then being sad that she herself didn't have the same opportunities. And when I speak to my friends, a lot of my mom can vocalize that. And so we've been able to process it together. And I understand that her, that, that so much of what I experienced of her emotionally wasn't personal, wasn't actually about me. She loves me very much. It was instead this sort of delocalized distress about her own life. But I think for a lot of women, they stuff that they can't articulate it. And so we have this feeling of unhappiness from our mothers or envy and, but we can't quite place it. It feels quite personal. And I think with every generation, this gets easier because we have more options but that for my generation and probably the next generation, there's this feeling that anything you do is an indictment on what your mother did before you, that if she stayed home and you choose to have a bigger life um, outside of the house, quote unquote, all of this in quotes, that you're indicting her choices and vice versa, um, that if you want to be at home with your children and your mom, all she wanted was for you to you know, be out in the world that you are wasting your life or wasting her sacrifice. And I think that so much of this is unspoken, but felt, and that the more we can bring it up and actually look at it, the more we can heal it and, and start to move forward. Um, predictably, we haven't got through all seven sins today. I did just want to briefly mention pride. Do you feel like women are judged for being confident in ways that men aren't? Oh my God. Yes. Um, no, I mean, you see this all the time, right? And, and what we're, women are told is, you know, be more confident, ask for the raise, you know, push harder. It's like, no way. You know, there's this idea that women have imposter syndrome. I don't think that women lack confidence. I don't lack confidence. My peers don't lack confidence. I just know how to manage the world to preserve my likability. And I understand how to use language to make it someone else's idea or create a situation in which I will not be punished for appearing too big for my britches or like a tall poppy in a poppy field. Yeah, I think your, and, um, your phrase is cushion, cushion yeah. the confidence. Cushion the confidence because 
that's how we know to operate and ultimately succeed in this world. But it's always sort of put the inequity again is put back on us as our problem or something that we a field we must cross. When I think we all look out at the world and understand, look no further than what we collectively do to visible famous women who dare to have a dream and express that dream in the world. We um, watch, we sort of celebrate them because they're ascending and then we destroy them typically. And this is the pattern. You know, you see this all over the place. This is why Taylor Swift has an army of fans (laughs) just who will come for you if you go for her. I think because they recognize, even if it's not conscious, the pattern recognition of this is what we do to women is in all of us. And you can be a civilian and still recognize like, oh, it's better to hide. It's better to not be seen, to not seek validation or acclaim or attention and to make that someone else's idea. And this book is mostly about women and mostly for women, but you're happy for men to read it, huh? (laughs) Oh, please. You are one of the first men to interview me, which is thrilling. Um, I think for men, the men who have read it have have emailed me. I've I've gotten some of the most meaningful emails from men. Huh. One because it unlocks, I think, some parts of of what the psychology of women in a way that I think is very revelatory, and that also it's not an anti man book. It's an anti patriarchal book, but the patriarchy is very cruel to men. I'm I'm honestly most concerned about about men. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for the time and thought that you've put into this uh, really significant book. It's called Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. I've been speaking to Elise Lunan. Thank you so much for your time today, Elise. Thank you for having me.